0: Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon as we ease on into a hot WIP Sunday. No matter where you go, make sure you take coolness with you, and there'll be cool conversation coming up here on 94 WIP. My guest this morning, a man I've admired for a long time, several of his books grace my bookshelf, Donald Bogle. He documents african-americans in film and he's got a new book talking about a very unique relationship almost a love story if you will a love story between michael jackson and elizabeth taylor let's say good morning to donald Bogle. boggle good morning donald good morning peter how are you i'm finding it's a pleasure to have you sir and oh my honor. pleasure my pleasure tell me about the new book about michael and elizabeth
1: well this is a a A a book that, you know, some critics have said that it's three books in one. It's a uh, look at the individual lives and careers and then the friendship of uh, Elizabeth Taylor and Michael Jackson. And um, the book, uh, you know, the first part of the book has alternating chapters going from young Elizabeth to young Michael leading up to the point where the two actually meet in the um, in the 80s and following this um, really unique relationship and looking at the two closely and seeing what it was that, that drew them together, what it was that um, really created this bond for the two of them. And it's a bond that... Um, went on from the time that they actually met up to the point, of course, uh, when Michael died in two thousand and nine by the way, we are approaching um, the anniversary of michael 's death he died june twenty fifth two thousand and nine and he 's been gone now uh, almost eight years, which is kind of hard to believe but um, but that 's what the book does, looking at the at, at the two of them in these um, these you know their experiences as children uh both of them being these huge stars and the the pressures that they were under and i think that one of the things that that did draw them together in looking at the past of each one was the fact that they had experienced things as kids um working as adults really when they were children that um no one else could really understand as well as the two of them, and so that really just um, it made it uh, easier for them to communicate with one another. It made it easier for them to really uh, understand uh, the adult pressures that each was uh, was living with. So that's what you know. The um, it's you know that's a basic. Um, that's the basic uh, point of the book, um, and, um, and just following them through their, their lives.
0: What pressures did they have as children? They both had amazing childhoods. Yeah, well, you know, um, it, it's interesting
1: that with Elizabeth Taylor, there, there's a generation that doesn't quite understand, I think, um, the kind of really extraordinary child star that she was. Um, Elizabeth Taylor was, was a, a big star from the time she was 12 years old. And she never after that um, was not famous. You know, someone once asked her, um, could she remember when she became famous? And she said that she really couldn't remember not being famous. But Elizabeth Taylor had um, made a movie called National Velvet in 1944 and um, she makes that movie. She had done a couple of films before that, but she makes that movie, and that movie is a huge hit um, around the world in, um, in the 40s, and uh, World War II was still on at that point, and it was, um, it was sort of like wartime entertainment in a way. It's about a little girl um, who um, enters a, uh, a race with her horse, and it's um, it's a race that that the jockeys are all male, and uh, girls are not supposed to do this. And there's a turn of events in the movie where she has to become. She loses her jockey for the, for this horse in this big race, and she she becomes the the jockey and she wins. So it was very much a um, a role that sort of um, it. It fit Elizabeth Taylor in many ways because this character was challenging um, attitudes about gender. And Elizabeth Taylor herself, as time went on um, with her marriages, her divorces, her rebellious spirit, very much was was challenging prevailing attitudes about uh, a woman's place in American society. But what I'll tell you, Peter, about in looking at the at the two of them and the similarities that they had as children, Elizabeth Taylor was at MGM Studios in the forties, and MGM was Hollywood's um, the biggest studio and probably its greatest studio, and she's at the studio and. One of the things I found so interesting in comparing Elizabeth and Michael were these pivotal points in their lives um, when they had to take control of things and of their careers. For Elizabeth, when she was about 15 years old, she's there at MGM. The head of MGM is Louis B. Mayer. Now, this powerful man in Hollywood, possibly the most powerful And what happened was that Elizabeth and her mother were in his office and they were discussing a role for Elizabeth that Elizabeth's mother and Elizabeth herself, the teenage Elizabeth, felt was not right for her. Louis B. Mayer was determined that she played this part. And sitting in the office, the conversation became heated. And he became really demanding that this was the part Elizabeth was to play. And he said certain things to her mother that Elizabeth Taylor uh, became angry about. She felt that he had insulted her mother. She didn't like the language he used with her mother. And finally, she just told him, uh, in essence, that that he and his studio could go to hell. That she wasn't going to sit there and hear him. Talk to her mother in that way. And she left Louis B. Mayer's office. Big deal at the studio came out after her and, and said to her, Elizabeth, look, you've got to go back, apologize to him. You can't do this. You can't anger this man in Hollywood like this. Uh, and Elizabeth Taylor said, no, she wasn't going to apologize, that he should apologize to her and to her mother. And she refused to go back. And then after that, in the days, the weeks to come, she sort of looked at what was happening to herself to see were they going to dump her from the studio. They didn't. They did not fire her. And Elizabeth Taylor said that that's when she realized for the first time, because they didn't fire her, that she had a certain value to that studio, and consequently she had a certain power. Now, she's a teenager, and that stuck with her. And so there were certain things that she would not do with the studio from then on. Now, there were certain things, of course, she had to continue to fulfill her contractual obligations, but she had a fuller sense of herself. With Michael, Michael as a teenager... Uh, Michael was at Motown, and Motown, this huge, I mean, this extremely successful uh, music company run by Barry Gordy, Jr., and he was a powerful man in the music uh, business, and what happened with Michael and the, the Jackson Five, this phenomenal singing group um, that it had hit after hit, um, what happened in the mid '70s was that the, the popular music was changing, and um, and they didn't have these big hits they once did. And they also wanted to write their own material to take more control over um, over their music, over their image, and they knew they were going to have to leave Motown because Motown was not letting them do. What they knew they had to do. And Joe Jackson, the father of the, of, of the they were boys then, and, and Jackie the oldest was a young man, uh, the father of the group and who managed them, he knew they had to leave, but he had not approached Gordy. It was going to be very difficult. And finally, it was Michael, who was a teenager. And Michael contacted Gordy and set up a meeting with him. And Michael and Gordy met, and Michael later said it was a um, it was a tense situation, it was difficult, and he really admired Barry Gordy. He really did. He looked up to him, and Barry Gordy, in a way, was like um, in a way was like a second father to him. But he knew that if something wasn't done about the career of the group, um, that they wouldn't be a group anymore. They would just be performers singing oldies. And he met with Gordy, and he got through that situation. Of course, they ended up leaving Motown. So we have these two teenagers, Elizabeth Taylor at MGM in the 40s, Michael Jackson at Motown in the um, the 70s, um, who sensefully, who, who they are, in a sense, and what they can do. And this aspect of the two of them, this is what enabled them to really um, keep working and working successfully in the entertainment uh, business. And, you know, both of them went on from being child stars to being huge adult stars. Elizabeth Taylor was um, was the first of the million-dollar stars. You know, today a star may get $20, 25000000 to do a movie and so forth. But Elizabeth Taylor, um, just before she did the film Cleopatra, uh, when the studio really, 20th Century Fox, wanted her for the film, um, Elizabeth Taylor, who really didn't want to do Cleopatra, told them she would do it for about a million. And they said yes. So she becomes the first of the million-dollar stars. And just... Big, big star around uh, the world. Uh, Michael, of course, went on to these extraordinary successes. He leaves uh, the Jackson 5. He goes on, and, um, and, of course, he has those groundbreaking albums. He does Off the Wall in 79, of course, and then when he does Thriller. And Thriller is still, you know, this best-selling Album of all time, but that whole thing of sort of um, taking control of a career and going out there um, on their own—that uh, was this aspect that you know had been de- developed when they were when they were young, and that you know reached maturity as they as they became adult stars. I'll tell you something, Peter, that uh, which is interesting, which uh, your listeners may have heard. And that is that, um, you know, when uh, when the Jackson Five do leave Motown, they uh, there was a battle because um, Motown owned the copyright to the name the Jackson Five. They did not own that name. Uh, I don't think they realized it, uh, you know, in the beginning, but. It ended up going to court. They didn't own it, and Motown kept the name. And then afterwards, uh, the group became known as the Jacksons. Um, so it was a um, – it, it, that, too, was a learning experience uh, for Michael, the whole thing that they couldn't keep the name. You know, Michael Jackson was a um, very shrewd businessman. Uh, he made business mistakes and he made some mistakes uh, later. but he, he was very shrewd about um, uh, uh, you know, about handling business um, affairs, making business uh, deals. Um, Elizabeth Taylor also, when it came to business, uh, you know, she became, Um, with her perfume line, first it was Passion, and then later a fragrance like White Diamonds, which is still selling uh, today, that um, she understood the ins and outs of of the business, uh, the the business world, or that aspect of the business world with her perfume company. So the... um, the two of them had these these things that um, that that very much were distinct to each of them, but it also was something that they had in common.
0: Both of them also never really had a childhood; never had a chance to go out and play. You know, whether it was kickball or Barbie dolls or whatever.
1: Exactly, and that was the other thing there that they um, they they didn't have childhoods. I mean, they were they were working kids, and um, they, they really weren't around um, other children um, a lot, other children in terms of playing with other children. Michael was working with his brothers, and, and it was interesting that, that the, Michael and his brothers, when, um, when they were touring and everything, to be at the hotels at night and so forth, they would um, very much be kids. Um, pillow fights or whatever, um, but no, Elizabeth and Michael didn't. They, they they and each felt that they had lost something that was very important. And for you know, um, Elizabeth Taylor got she always felt that you know that that this had been taken from her her childhood, but she she moved on. Michael, um, it began to affect him uh, in a different way as time went on. I mean, he really mourned the fact that, that he hadn't had a childhood. Um, and eventually he tried to recreate his childhood. His whole thing with um, creating Neverland, this this place in, in California, that um, very much for him was, it was like a, recapturing a childhood he didn't have neverland had rides and entertainment and all of that so there was that thing for the two of them that they hadn't had uh their their childhoods and something that was very important to them had been denied them or had been lost or taken away from them so that they they understood um as well you know the um Interesting thing about the the two of them is that, um, that their relationship, and people don't quite realize this that um, Michael Jackson pursued Elizabeth Taylor. You know, people don't don't realize that Michael he, was
0: starstruck, wasn't he?
1: Very much starstruck, very much. And the thing about Michael, and this is also true of his um, of his brothers. Uh, they were, were fascinated by entertainment history. Um, they knew the great African American acts in show business, the the singing uh, performers, the dancers. They they knew who they were from the past. They they read this thing and absorbed it. They, as kids growing up, they 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 were caught up in television and learned a lot about that. So, um, Michael was, was fascinated by these people in, um, in show business who he felt had great talents.
0: Now, Donald, I need you to hold that thought, sir. because sure. I got to run a few commercials. We'll okay. be back in just a bit. The WIP time 719. And we're back and we're talking with documentary of the black entertainment industry. Donald Bogle, his new book. Elizabeth and Michael, the Queen of Hollywood and the King of Pop, a love story. My name's Peter Solomon.
1: Okay, Peter. Yeah. By the way, it's, it's Bogle. It's kind of tricky, but okay. it's Bogle. Bogle,
0: thank you. <laughs> that's thank you all for, right. Thank you for that's, correcting me. No,
1: that's okay. Right. Yeah. So, by the way, I think um, your listeners should know that I'm, I'm going to be in Philadelphia for an event. I'm doing a, um, a book signing at the African American uh, Museum. I think it's at 7th and Arch, and I'll be there uh, this Tuesday, uh, June 20th, and I'll be uh, interviewed on stage, and I'll be signing books, and um, the event starts at 5.30, and it goes to 7 o'clock. So I hope some of your viewers, well, I hope many of them uh, will, will come to the, uh, come to the event, and we'll have copies of the book, Elizabeth and Michael, that will be sold, and I'd be happy to sign them if if anybody wants my signature on them. And we're also going to be, um, we'll have copies of my other book. It's a book um, called Heat Wave, The Life and Career of Ethel Waters. And I'm going to be talking a bit about Ethel Waters that that evening. Ethel Waters, you know, was um, from Chester, grew up in Chester and in um, Philadelphia, and uh, she worked as a chambermaid at a, at a hotel in uh, Philadelphia um, and had dreams of performing. And somehow or another, she uh, went off and had this extraordinary career as a blues singer, as a Broadway star, as a Hollywood uh, star. So I'm going to be talking about Ethel Waters, too, a woman who's not as well-remembered today as she, she should be, a great great entertainer of the 20th century, a woman who could sing, could dance, um, uh, a woman who um, was a powerful, dramatic uh, actress. And of course, Ethel being one of the great entertainers of the 20th century, Michael was awesome. Many people feel Michael Jackson was perhaps the, the greatest entertainer. Um, and people who saw him... Uh, live have never forgotten it, and of course we can still see his extraordinary work as a singer and as a dancer on his on his great um, videos, whether it's Billie Jean or um, Beat It, or uh, or of course Thriller. But you know, you and I we were talking about um, Michael, and and I, I was saying that the. Uh, The Jackson kids, they knew about show business and show business history and so forth. For Michael, um, once he was signed, and his brothers were signed at at Motown, uh, the great thrill for Michael was to meet the great, acts of Motown, and he was still very young, but these were people he had seen since he was a, a tiny kid, and um, uh, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, um, Acts Like the Temptations, uh, The Supremes, uh, The Four Tops, uh, Martha and the Vandellas, these these great groups, and he and his brothers, uh, and, and his, his parents, too, were just... You know they they had such great admiration for these these talents. Michael's two um, favorites. Uh, I mean, he liked them all, but he really was drawn to uh, Jackie Wilson, uh, who had a big hit many many years ago, decades ago, called "Lonely Teardrops," um, and uh, and James Brown. And you know there is footage around. Today of uh, and I'm many people have seen it. They show it on television at different times when they're talking about Michael, sort of their their demo um, presentation where he he does a, a James Brown song and goes to the kind of his James Brown act. He's a little boy, and it's uh, it's a tribute to James Brown, but it's also Michael. So nonetheless, Michael Jackson, um, you know, really admiring great stars that had come before him, Um, he also, uh, what I found very uh, interesting in doing the book, Elizabeth and Michael, is that um, he liked uh, other child stars, and he liked the kids in the Our Gang series, The Little Rascals, and he was really thrilled later in his life when he met Spanky McFarlane and I don't know if your listeners are familiar with, with, with Spanky, but he's in the old series. You can still see them on DVDs and so forth. And um, he was sort of a, um, we'll say he was like a, a chunky kid. And uh, Michael got to meet him uh, when, when he was an adult. And, and Spanky McFarlane, of course, was much older than Michael also, which I have in the book, Elizabeth and Michael, um, his meeting with Shirley Temple. And he just... You know he admired Shirley Temple, and um, and it was a very emotional meeting that the the two of them. I also have in the book when he went to um, visit at one point Spanky McFarland's uh, at Spanky McFarland's home uh, while Michael was on tour. He was in an area where Spanky McFarland lived, and he knew that. So there was all of that where he really um, these other child stars. He was very much drawn to them. And the thing was, again, that these child stars, people like Shirley Temple, Spanky McFarlane, and others, those who had worked in show business, and somehow, even if they didn't become stars when they were adults, they had survived. They, too, hadn't had childhoods, and they had survived in life. They're child stars who fall by the wayside. In the past, this happened. It happens today. Um, very hard for them to to cope, particularly as they get older. Um, and when I say older, they go through adolescence and young adulthood because everything can change uh, for them, and many don't still have those careers. Nonetheless, he admired uh, these these child stars, and Elizabeth Taylor now, Don, had, been, had been a child star.
0: Now, something you have in common, though, with Michael, it seems to me, is a fascination with the stars of yesteryear. I mean, when you look at your book, Toms, Coons, and Mulattoes," "Heat Wave," the life and career of Ethel Waters, "Bright Boulevards," "Bold Dreams," "Brown Sugar," um, and my book on Dorothy Dandridge. Your book, absolutely. Yeah, I was getting to Dorothy Dandridge. Yeah. What What fascinates you about these people? Well, you
1: know, I, for me, um, and I guess it is like with the Jackson kids, um, growing up, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania outside of Philadelphia. I won't say exactly where it was, but I was, you know, a television kid. I, you know, I saw all these um, old movies and, and television shows and so forth and um, really, uh, you know, fascinated by them. I enjoyed them. Um, for me, what happened, though, was that with the um, the old movies and things where you would see uh, an African-American in them, and I would always be struck by it. We're talking about movies that went way back that I would see on TV, movies that had been made in the uh, 30s or 40s. And speaking of Shirley Temple with Michael, uh, Shirley Temple had worked in four movies with the great dancer Bill Bojangles Robinson. And um, nonetheless, I would see these these old movies on TV, um, or you might see a revival, something like Gone with the Wind, with Hattie McDaniel uh, in it, in her Oscar-winning role, movie from 1939. And anyway, whenever I would see a black performer in these old movies, I became very curious i i i wondered why the movies weren't about them and i always wondered where these black and i'm a kid watching it where these black performers went when when you know they were off screen i'm talking about in terms of the storyline of the movies cuz i was taking the movies as real i wondered like with Gone with the Wind, Hattie McDaniel playing Mammy, where where did she go when she left Scarlett O'Hara's side? Did she um, have um, did she did did she go out to the slave quarters to to go to bed at night, or did she have a room somewhere there in in the big house? Uh, if I saw Bojangles with Shirley Temple, where did he go when he left Shirley Temple's uh, side? Uh, there were many other of uh, these african-american entertainers from that uh, earlier period i wondered about can ethel waters um who had made hollywood films and, and the big film for her in 1943 was a cabin in the sky that was an all-star black film with uh with ethel with lena horn with eddie rochester anderson eddie rochester anderson had worked with jack benny uh this great comedian on the uh, movies and uh, on the radio at first and in movies and in television. So I wondered about them and I um, you know I began looking for information and they didn't have um, a, a whole lot, there wasn't a whole lot written about them, not historically and that's when I began to dig and to do research on my own and to, um, to, to learn more about their lives, to learn about the, um, the, the nature of, the, of their work, what it was like for them, uh, particularly the ones in the earlier period where these um, racial lines were so tightly drawn, and many of these people with great talent and, and having to play stereotype roles in the movies uh, how they dealt with that. I felt many of them were great performers who somehow um, uh, upended those stereotype roles to make personal statements in their movies. So nonetheless, I, I had that interest and I began um, researching it and then I began, you know, writing about it. And uh, my first book was a book called Toms, Coons, Mulattoes, Mammies, and Bucks, an interpretive history of African Americans. Uh, of interpretive history of blacks at that point, of blacks uh, in American uh, films. And um, Tom's Coons, Mulattoes, Mammies, and Bucks, by the way, Peter, has just, there is a new updated fifth edition of Tom's Coons, Mulattoes, Mammies, and Bucks. And the book now comes up to the period, um, to, to, to recent films like 12 Years, a slave, Straight Out of Compton, um, uh, Django Unchained, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, contemporary uh, stars, um, whether it's Denzel Washington, or if it's Queen uh, Latifah, or if it's Viola Davis, um, and and African-American filmmakers who have opportunities. Now, it's still not a perfect situation at all. It isn't. Um, but they have the kind of opportunities that um, uh, African-Americans didn't have before in the um, in, in the film industry. So I,
0: that,
1: that I, was how I, you know, that's how it started for me.
0: Got to do a commercial, commercial break again. Stay with me. We'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 738. And we're back. My name is Peter Solomon. It's WIP <laughs> Sunday. And we're spending WIP Sunday with... Entertainment historian Donald Bogle, his new book, Elizabeth and Michael, the Queen of Hollywood, and the King of Pop, a love story. And once again, I'm going to remind folks, Mr. Bogle is going to be at the African-American Historical Museum Tuesday, <laughs> day after tomorrow, 5.30 to 7, talking about Elizabeth and Michael, his new book, and throwing in a good helping of Ethel Waters as well. <laughs> yes. All right. If you could have Elizabeth and Michael to dinner, what would you ask them? One question.
2: Um,
1: I, I think I would ask them about uh, their picnics together. Um, because, you know, at Neverland, she used to visit Neverland at different times, and they would have their own picnics where they would sit and talk, and uh, he had a gazebo there, and it uh, was a splendid view of the area around them it sort of sat up and you know this is the aspect of the two of them that we were never really going to know is what certain private moments were like uh, so i would ask them i would ask them uh, that you know with the, with the two of them um, as I, as i indicate in the book when they were asked about what made them friends um, Elizabeth Taylor was asked publicly a number of times. Johnny Carson asked her, and and, and others, and um, they would talk just generally about their childhoods, generally, and um, that this you know brought them together, you know, the shared experience. But they never went into real details about certain things, and that was the thing with the book, digging to find out what was happening. As I said, there are things we will probably never know because they, you know, those really intense private moments that they uh, they had together. So I would ask them something like, like that. You know, I was telling you uh, earlier, and again, I don't want to uh, well, I probably didn't say this before, but I don't want to say everything that's in the book, but it is important that, that um, you know, he did pursue her and The way that they actually came to meet, he invited her to one of his concerts. Now, he'd been trying to meet her, and it hadn't worked out. And she came to the concert, and she brought friends with her. By one estimate, she had about 15 people. Another estimate said 30. And he had had range for great seats for them, but the seats, she found it difficult to really hear him, to see him, um, as, as great as the seats were. And in the middle of the concert, uh, she ended up leaving. She said she went home and looked at it on a, on a, um, on, on a disc or um, some special uh, television connection. And um, Michael heard she had left, and he was really upset because... He wanted her, um, you know, he wanted to meet her, really, and establish a friendship, but he wanted her, to, her to see him at his best on stage. When he was on stage, you know, no one could touch him. And when Michael Jackson was on stage, he had a complete sense of who he was. There was no confusion when he was on that stage. All stage, it was different. And there were, you know, all sorts of, Of of issues for him, but nonetheless he was very upset she had left. And he later called her. And she explained to him that, you know, it was a problem. She really couldn't hear, couldn't see, and so forth. And he was crying. And they had a long conversation. And on the phone he had opened himself up to her. And from his vantage point, I mean, she hadn't rejected him. You know, here he was crying, uh, you know, like a kid, and she understood. And so he asked, you know, uh, could he visit her? And she said, of course. They had a long conversation that day. And, um, and he asked, could he bring bubbles with him, <laughs> bubbles with his chimp? Right. And he used to hang around with bubbles all the time. Um, and, um, and Elizabeth Taylor said, sure. <laughs> she said, I love animals. And she did love animals. And Michael and all the Jackson kids loved animals. At Neverland, he had his own zoo. And even before that, when he was living with the family in, in Ceno, you know, they, they had animals all over. They loved them. So nonetheless, he went to see her. And that was the, the beginning. And, you know, the, the two of them, it's just interesting, These they had similarities to children, but they had different backgrounds in other ways. Elizabeth Taylor's father was an art dealer at the Beverly Hills Hotel in Los Angeles. I mean, this was the top hotel, and he was a very cultivated man. She had been born, actually, in London. Her parents were both American. They were living abroad. She had a very, very privileged life they came to america um at the you know at the outbreak of world war ii and they, you know they go to los angeles and so forth um but she had this kind of background michael had grown up in gary indiana and um it was you know it it, it was a his, his father was was a working class man who had great ambition and um so in this way, their backgrounds were different. They also, there was the whole racial no, element. Man. They had, the, the, that how race came into this. Um, and there was this whole thing of gender, and there was a the whole thing of age. She was yes. 20, almost 30, not completely 30 years, but almost 30 years older than Michael Jackson. So they had all these lines to cross,
0: Donald, we have a caller, so I want to say good morning to the very patient, Jesse. Good morning, Jesse.
2: Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm fine. Okay, well, good morning, uh, Donald. How's good everything? Morning. Good morning. I have yeah, uh, several of your books. And, oh, thank uh, you, you. Good. Yes, you have a wealth of, of knowledge. I am uh, I live in Cobb's Creek, and uh, I know where you grew up. I'm not going to mention it, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and I'm familiar with, with the, your, your uh, brother's work also. Oh. I'm going to I'm going to be there uh, Tuesday. I'm going to shake your hand. Now, let's talk about uh, Ethel Waters. I, I read a book about her before, uh, and I'm going to I'm, I'd like to buy your book. And I, also I I have uh, the uh, one Dorothy Dorothy you know Broken Boulevards, Broken Dreams, you know.
1: Yeah, Bright Boulevard's Broken. Uh, Bright Boulevard. Bright,
2: uh, uh, bold Dreams. Yeah. Right. And uh, let's talk about people like Clarence Muse. And we'll go back even f- uh, further uh, with Nina Mae McKinney yeah. and yeah. Noble Johnson.
1: Yes, Noble Johnson.
2: Ah, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, these were some of, you know, some of the
1: early people. Yes. That, now, it's interesting. When I was talking about looking at things on TV as a kid, mm-hmm. I really didn't see, like, Nina Mae McKinney. She, I sort of uh, discovered when I began, you know, researching Right. Uh, film. But Nina Mae McKinney was, was probably Hollywood's first black love goddess. She, right. was, she was a beautiful woman. She's in the uh, 1929... Uh, Hallelujah. Hallelujah, that's right. Oh. Yeah, Jesse. Yes, you know. yes. And so um, she was just this great star. And she comes before Lena Horne and comes before Dorothy Dandridge. And she just didn't you know, the way the industry was, she didn't get to do the things she should have done. She left the country uh, for a while and entertained abroad the way Josephine Baker had done before right. her and, um, and, and was known abroad. Clarence Muses is, is a very interesting man. I interviewed him. Right. Um, and he, um, he, you know, he, he was educated and he, he was a man who did on a, a, a certain important moments he, he spoke out.
2: Right, he in went to Hollywood. Dick- Dickinson Law School. That's right. That's and, right. And uh, uh, a May McKenney, hallelujah, oh, it's one of my favorites. And uh, Noble Johnson, he had his own company. Well, Noble Johnson, when
1: you know, now, Noble Johnson was, um, uh, Noble Johnson worked in silent films right, in Hollywood. Right, right. And he played all sorts of, of roles. He, you know, he, he might play. Um, an Egyptian one day he might play mm-hmm. a Native American, whatever, and also um, African Americans. And Noble Johnson, he, he was he was a good looking man. He he was uh, tall, muscular. He looked like a leading man. Right. But it wasn't going to happen for him at,
2: right. at Hollywood it, 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 the Hollywood studios. The time wasn't uh, well for him.
1: No. How, however, he, uh, he helped uh, form the uh, Lincoln Motion Picture
2: right corporation, right corporation
1: and. This was an early company that made black films, films with with, with African American cast, and they, these were made for black audiences. I mean, he was really a pioneer.
2: Right, he was. He was. And, you
1: know, because he had to get finance for the movies; they had to distribute them, and it just it, it wasn't easy. But um, and the company didn't last as long as you know we would have wanted it to last. But this was an important. Beginning And he really, in a way, with the Lincoln Motion Picture Company, it, it leads the way to Oscar Michel. Micheaux And exactly. Oscar Michaud was an African-American um, writer, director, producer. I mean, he, it's really amazing the work that Michaud, uh did. He started working in the teens in silent films and kept working through the transition when sound came in. Um, and he, his last film was released, I believe around 1947.
2: He made films here in Philadelphia. Uh, yes. Years yes. ago. He did. And yes. And in
1: Chicago and so forth. Yes. He was, um, he was really this, um, he, he was way ahead of his At the time, time. And, and, and he kept making movies. Right. He and real, he really did. And he was, he was a showman. Because well, he had to, to get out there, and I mean this in the best way, and do a kind of hustle
2: oh, yes. to, to get yes.
1: people to invest in his in his movies and then to get his
2: movies uh, shown. So, uh, you, ever, you remember the, the movie uh, Pinky with yes. Jean Crane? Well, Nina Mae McKenney had a little part in that. She was older at the time. Yes. And yes. she was uh, uh, supposed to be been the, the, the girlfriend of Frederick O'Neill. Who himself? He you really know real. these people, yeah? Oh yeah. yeah. I, look, I, re- I read your books, and I've been—I'm uh, an a amateur historian. I'm going to be there Tuesday, and it's very good talking to you. Well, make sure you come up to me. I will. And tell will. me that we've talked today, right? Okay. So hey, thank I'm you no. very much, Peter. So, thank look you, Jesse. i forward to meeting you, Jesse. Bye-bye. Now take care. Thank okay. You, Jesse.
0: Bye-bye. And thank you, Donald Bogle. His new book, Elizabeth and Michael, the Queen of Hollywood. And the King of Pop: A Love Story. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Peter. It's been my pleasure. Okay. And I want to say thank you as well to Vanessa Scambadi for making this interview possible. Vanessa from the Literary. She does amazing work. Stay tuned for Sunny Hill. Always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinions, Sunny's reactions. I know I'll be. I know I'll be listening. Nothing left to say. But see you soon.